Hello and welcome to the first episode of Megaten Marathon. It's a game-by-game -game journey into the world of Shin Megami Tensei and the Persona games. Um, I'm Paul M. Davis, and who am I here with? It's me, Brian Static. Weirdo who decided to do this in the first place. And I'm uh, Evan. In the previous Not Real episode, we gave a little intro on uh, why we were doing this, but, you know, just a short version of this is we are going to play all of the Mega Ten games um, in semi but not completely chronological order, which is a little bit of an insane uh, project to take on, but uh, I think we're up for it. Absolutely. It's so insane I haven't even tried to count the number of games we'd be playing. I'd rather just not know. Yeah, and you'd rather not think about the fact that each of these games is going to be at least 20 hours. Absolute minimum. Yep. So, but before we talk about the first Mega Ten game ever made, we have some other business to discuss. Yeah, first off, uh, should we start off with a little bit of uh, history on what the Mega Ten Shin Megami Tensei games are? Yeah, that's, that sounds great. Cool. They are inspired by a trilogy of novels uh, called Digital Devil Story by the Japanese author Aya Nishitani. After the second novel, I believe, is that correct? Yeah, that's that's from my understanding. This it was two novels and then the first two Mega Ten Atlas games. So after the first two novels, Atlas uh, developers Kuji Okada. Ginichiro Suzuki and Kazunari Suzuki uh, developed the first game, D Digital Devil Story Megami Tensei, which was released in 1987 for the Famicom and re-released for the Super Famicom in 1995 as uh, Kyu Yaku at Megami Tensei, which also included the sequel. And it's probably worth noting here that uh, I don't think any of us speak Japanese, so please... We will try the best to uh, pronounce these uh, names and titles correctly, but um, please go easy on us. So yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the games have been around for almost 30 years, and most of the early titles weren't lo localized because they have heavy religious influences and lots of uh, dick and uh, boob monsters, <laughs> which was not really in line with uh, Nintendo's, uh, <laughs> at least Nintendo of America's policies of what was appropriate. But uh, in Japan, uh, the Shin Megami Tensei games have turned into probably the third most popular role-playing franchise behind uh, Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest. And I believe the first one to come to the U.S. that was a Shin Megami Tensei branded title was Revelations Persona. Persona being the uh, a spinoff series that most popularly known in the U.S. is um, Persona 3 and Persona 4, which came out for the PS2. Small footnote to that. the um, Technically, the first Shin Megami Tensei game released in English was Jack Bros for the Virtual Boy. <laughs> yes, that is true. Which was just a puzzle game, right? I, it's like, I don't know exactly, but it, it's like a top-down kind of action game. I mean, I'm sure there are puzzle elements to it, but it sure looked like uh, shooting the enemies with your uh, frost beam or whatever seemed to be a major part of the gameplay. 
It's really kind of amazing if you look at the American art because this was like, you know, definitely during the era of really terrible American box art. And um, Jack Frost has like kind of become the mascot of the series. And that game was based on Jack Frost. And he's this very cute anime devil. And uh, <laughs> the cover of the Virtual Boy uh, American title is just these two hideous looking demons for this like you know very simple you know anime puzzler <laughs> of all the games of all the Shin Megami games you could have brought to the US and given ridiculous metal box art to <laughs> you guys chose Jack Bros which to be fair like g given the uh, given the political environment at the time probably a wise idea they didn't release all these devil summoning games in the early 90s oh definitely I think Evan it was you who said the all the ev evangelicals who are saying Pokemon are uh, teaching our children to summon demons. I remember from my youth uh, getting a little pamphlet that tried to link uh, Weeping Bell to crying for Baal, the god referenced to the Bible. It's like, well, Baal is actually an enemy in these games, so he, he's actually in this thing. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine their, people would have reacted. All their greatest fears are true in Shin Megami Tensei. <laughs> I feel, uh, well, we did come across that, and maybe uh, we'll put this in the show notes, that thread where uh, some evangelicals finally, you know, 25 years after the you know the beginning of the Shin Megami Tensei series came across Persona 3 and were horrified by it. Oh, but, yes. You know, the, the, the series has definitely caught on in popularity in the U.S. probably in the last 10, 10 years, um, yeah, definitely. 10 to 15 years. But it hasn't really reached the level of saturation where there's going to be, you know, large, like, um, protests against the series or anything like that. Maybe one day. That's when we'll know Shin Megami has made it. Yeah. <laughs> Something for uh, Atlas to uh, shoot for. So, I mean, that kind of goes back to uh, talking about Jack Bros. Uh that kind of goes back to the fact that there's actually only been 10 mainline Megami Tensei games made in the past 30 years. Um, but there's been a ton of spinoffs uh, in other genres such as like strategy and action RPGs. Um, most notable being the Persona series, which we will probably reference regularly. But uh, to all these games, there's usually a few recurring elements and... Uh, First one would be probably that most of them take place in an apocalyptic modern-day Tokyo. They usually have a mechanic where you are battling but also negotiating with demons to try and get them to join your team, which um, you know, is similar to Pokemon in a lot of ways, but uh, the Megami uh, Tensei games predate Pokemon by at least a decade, I think. Um... And then the other key element is that you can uh, breed stronger demons by fusing them together. And I think those are probably the three kind of like core elements of most of the games. Yeah, sounds about right to me. Uh, there is uh, one bit of history that we didn't touch on there, and that is there was a Megami Tensei game that wasn't developed by Atlas at all, made, I believe, in 1986 or 87. Uh, by the company Telenet, I want to say. And it was sort of like a, a weird, shitty gauntlet clone. Um, how these series of novels 
was able to spawn two different games is beyond me, really. But we'll get to the novels in a second. Yeah, I think it's probably uh, we're starting out here. And I think in this episode, we're going to cover a lot of ground. You know, we're talking about the history, but we're also going to talk about the first two of the three novels that have been fan translated. None of them have been officially translated into English. And also go into the first uh, first half of the uh, Megami Tensei, the first title for the NES that I think all of us have played the Japanese or the uh, Super Nintendo uh, remake of it. Yes, we played a fan translated Super Nintendo enhanced remake. So we were given some uh, very nice liberties that people who played it on the NES didn't have access to. So are you guys ready to dive into this? This, uh, how, how would you say, very unique book? I would say the most fan fiction s schlock that I've ever seen published, but there's, there's <laughs> a bad out there. And, and no, no offense to the people that actually translated this. Like, I really appreciate that somebody went in their spare time and they're like, you know what? This, this was foundational to this very important, very good series. It deserves to be in English. It's a shame that it's terrible. I don't, I don't know how much of that is the translation and how much of it's the original text, but... Man, it's been a long time since it's been, it's been this hard to get through a book. Yeah, I'm I'm actually like a little ashamed that as of right now, it is a true statement for me to say that this, these are the last books I've read. <laughs> um, and, and I think and it is hard to tell what's the author and what's the translation. But I, I you know, I, the first book and the second book didn't seem to have the same sort of syntax. So I'm I'm assuming we read different translation teams on each book, but that it still seemed more of a problem with the author than the translation. All right, so let's uh, let's dive right in, shall we? All right. So how does this... Who's good at summarizing these things? I, I can take a crack at it. All right, go for it, Evan. The Story of Digital Devil Story Book One. Uh, it's... It's not great. Uh, the, the book opens up with somebody summoning a demon quietly at his, uh, at his school. He is... A pariah in most respects, except all the girls love him. He's incredibly weak, but somehow is treated as like this very respectable, very important kid in the school. Uh, and it sets up very early on, oh, this is a special school, and he's a special student at the special school. He's, he's a genius among geniuses, and all the non-geniuses at the school hate him, and all the women that can't have him, they hate him. And uh, the book actually opens up with him getting beaten up by a, a dumb student because a girl, uh, because he rejected a girl's advances. And so like any reasonable person, he goes home and programs a demon summoning program to commit a triple homicide, uh, to kill the bully, to kill the girl, and to kill a teacher that just happened to be there at the time. And that is our protagonist. That is uh, Nakajima. Uh, he is going to be the main character in all the games, and he's going to be the main protagonist in the story. It's not clear at the beginning that he's a protagonist, because right off from the bat, he's set up as a villain, as a terrible person. Uh, there's nothing sympathetic about him. Uh, for whatever reason, the book keeps referring to him as ex extra feminine. Uh, there's a couple of quotes we picked out from the books. Uh, With his slender frame and delicate looks, if Nakajima swapped his uniform for a girl's sailor suit, he might very well be able to pass for a beautiful teenage girl. And uh, there may be a cultural thing that we're missing here, but... There's a lot of references to his femininity in that first book, especially. Yeah, it's like the two main characteristics of this guy is he's feminine and he thinks summoning demons is a good way to solve his problems. 
that you know not not the most likable guy in the world well he's just your classic you know like high school nice guy you know it's just like <laughs> except you know that he can summon demons and he actually doesn't want the attention of the women that are going after him <laughs> oh yeah yeah uh, and there are some brief attempts early on to try to connect his demon summoning to like a lovecraftian style world building where it'll reference uh, arkham and it'll reference new england uh, and he's trying to communicate back and forth getting advice on how to handle his demon problem but that gets dropped really quickly, and it basically becomes, well, he's really smart, and he wrote a computer program, and also, I guess he has some sort of mysterious portable computer, which is a near-magical artifact in 1987. It is kind of odd to try to pair Lovecraft, which is all about the horror of the unknowable, with computers, something that we actually kind of understand pretty well. <laughs> yeah, and I definitely appreciate that, like, in 1987, I know we had a certain level of computer technology, and I know the average high school student isn't really capable of all that much, but, like, it's an interesting jump from, uh, we got a computer with 8 kilobits of RAM to, oh yeah, this 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 is a supercomputer with a genius-level intelligence. Uh, so, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but uh, he uses the computer to summon Loki, uh, but unfortunately, Loki can't actually leave the environment, uh, the virtual environment that he's created. Uh, for whatever reason, Loki exists in a kind of 3D AI world. Uh, he can download consciousnesses into that world, but he can't really escape from it. Uh, he can't really enter the real human world. Until this weird, uh, it's always described as stinky. Uh, this weird stinky ectoplasm starts to leach into the human world, Eventually, we meet our second protagonist, Kondo Hiroyuki. Uh, Kondo Hiroyuki is the second main character, and also confusingly the love interest, because nothing says nothing says true love like stumbling into an attempted demon rape. Uh, uh, she's a little, she's a transfer student. She's suspicious of Nakajima, and she says, "You know what? I'm going to sneak in at midnight to see whatever he's doing because there's something weird going on. All the students are hypnotized. All the students are being." Controlled. Okay, yeah, I, I see what I skipped. Yeah, so after getting beaten up, Nakajima decides he's going to get revenge on the, the two bullies and commit that triple homicide that I mentioned about. Uh, basically, he contacts Loki. Loki hypnotizes the school and has them uh, basically kill the two bullies and then kill the teacher that was controlling the class at the time. Uh, soon after that, uh, the love interest... Wait, 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 wait. Oh, sorry, sorry. sorry. Small correction... Uh, Hiroyuki is the guy who attacks him. It's, uh, it's, uh, Yumiko who's the love interest. Yumiko. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, all these names are running together. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I had this problem when I tried to read Battle Royale. <laughs> I, it's really hard. I mean, it's, it, it's hard to, to remember a lot of names from a culture that you're not engrossed in fully, you know? Well, not only that, but it's hard to remember names when none of the people seem like believable characters. Yeah, you know, they're at most archetypes, but that's that's being generous. There's a teacher involved somewhere in there. Oh, and she's having Yes, yes. And she's having uh, virtual sex with Loki, who's like a, according to the novel, a like genius level AI. Ah, yes, genius level. Uh, genius level and irresistible because he is some sort of like scaly amorphous monster, which all the ladies love. Uh, so, 
Yeah, after the triple murder, we're introduced to uh, Yukiko, the uh, second main character of the books, and confusingly, the love interest. Uh, she's a transfer student into Nakajima's school, and for whatever reason, she can't figure out why everybody's being so cold to her, why nobody wants to talk to her about Nakajima, and why he's somehow able to not participate in any classes, because he's basically hypnotized the whole school. Uh, so fast forward to her getting very suspicious of what happens with him. Uh, she tries to sneak in and see what's going on in these weird midnight meetings he's having at the computer terminal room in the school. And she catches him doing one of his weird, like, summoning Loki to rape one of his other teachers. Really, really just, like, not setting him up as a protagonist at all. But um, he summons Loki. Uh, eventually, Loki breaks out of his control. Uh... I'm having a hard time remembering the next part of this book because... I, let's see. He fights Loki. Loki somehow captures Yumiko and they go to a place in Asuka where they uh, have sort of a final fight. Um, then th that's when Izanami enters the story and it's revealed that Yumiko was a reincarnation of Izanami. Oh, did we mention that there were small flashbacks throughout this entire book where they were just having these weird memories... And you find out it's because both of these characters are reincarnation of gods, which might have something to do with that title, Magame Tensei. Yeah, Izanami and Izanagi. I think we missed one important point, though, is that uh, Yumiko is almost uh, tentacle-raped. Um, oh, right. Almost. Was, was a thing uh, 30 years ago in uh, Japanese culture as well as today. So uh, that was that was an educational moment for me. Um, yeah, so she is almost tentacle raped by Loki, uh, but the teacher is so jealous that doesn't she bash Yumiko's skull in? So that's why. Uh, oh yeah, so she has to be actually reborn. Yeah, yeah. He needs. She needs to go to uh, Izunami's tomb in order to bring her back to life. Uh, they meet a very smelly demon who's covered in slime and looks horrible, but is friendly, who gives uh, Nakajima two orbs. Doesn't really explain why or what they're for, but here's some balls. Have them. Uh, oh, and his, his instinct when he thinks he has to use them is like, I'm just going to smack these together until something happens. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like you do. This demon gave me some balls, so I'm going to smash them into each other. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, Loki eventually does come to the real world. He materializes. Uh, the teacher he's working with teleports him via phone lines to uh, a bank computer in the in the region where the Izanami's tomb is, where uh, Nakajima has run off to with uh, Yukiko's uh, body. He, he brings her in. He starts trying to bring her back to life, but uh, Loki beats him to the punch uh, and uses his weird demon resurrection thing to turn her into basically like a rotting corpse zombie person. Uh, Izunami uh, materializes, brings her back to life properly, uh, and through a very confusing series of events in Izanami's tomb, uh, using those two balls, Nakajima smashes them together, gets a big flaming sword, kills Loki. Yukiko is resurrected. They are reunited. Uh, you find out that she's the resurrection of the goddess Izunami, and Nakajima is the resurrection of the goddess Izunagi, and they were fated to be together forever. And much like in the, in the myth, he, trans he went down into the underworld to bring her back to life. Only, unlike the myth, it worked, and she's fine, and she's not a horrible monstrosity. So... Oh. All right, so I, I got a question about the myth of Izanagi. Mm -hmm. Is Izanagi a dick in the myth? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I didn't see him portrayed as such. Because that, that, it just baffles me. This is the creator god of the Japanese culture, and his reincarnation is this asshole kid who summons other demons to solve his problems. At a certain point, all of his problems stop being caused by other people and start being caused by himself. Uh, like, about ten minutes into this book, everything that's wrong with the world and with him is his own fault. So that's pretty much the end of book one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think the uh, kind of confused retelling of it is appropriate for uh, the uh, content therein. It's it's not, I mean, again, fan translation, it's not very clear a lot of the time, and I lost the thread a few times when I was reading it myself. So it's it's totally understandable, and it just, you know, it wasn't fun to read, so your interest wanes as you flip through the pages. Yeah, and unfortunately I didn't keep notes on the book like I did on the game, so yeah, it, it was quite possibly the worst book that I've ever read all the way through. And I'll preface that by saying that I used to read those Driz Doerden books, uh, D&D books back in high school. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> we got... <laughs> that leads us into book two, which pretty much picks up right where the first one leaves off. Um, Warrior of the Demon City, which is a pretty badass name for a pretty shitty book. It's, it's true. That is a pretty badass name. Like, I'll admit right off the bat... I didn't understand 80% of the things that happened in book two. Um, I'm going to, you know, just jump ahead a little bit. It pretty much just ends in the apocalypse. So most of the things that happened didn't even really matter. All this political intrigue, all these dealings between governments. And the earth is dead at the end. So what did you guys take away from it? Well, Loki's defeated in the first book. And then we got a, we got a stinger at the end of the first book. Because um, the teacher, whose name I can't remember, who was in love with Loki, um, is now back at the school, and she's pregnant with a demon baby. And she uh, is trying to summon Loki and figure out what happened to him. And who comes other than Set, the Egyptian god? And so in the second book, Set... Uh, very much like in the first book, somehow gets outside of the computer and becomes this weird monster made out of God knows what, ectoplasm and whatnot, and then starts going around Japan with people chasing after him, and those people can being consumed into the ectoplasm, creating a giant pillar of dead bodies, or maybe they're still living, but they're, like, you know, in some, like, Junji Ito-style, like, you know, twisted and horrible state that are <laughs> making up the body of Set, which is this giant flesh and ectoplasm tower. I, I, I actually do remember liking that section of the book for a little bit. And I remember because specifically Nakajima uh, said something like, are they filming a movie here? And it's like, he knew they weren't filming a movie. He was just trying to calm himself from the insanity that he saw. And I just thought that was a pretty nice touch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nakajima, he like bounces around because uh, Yumiko is hanging out, uh, recovering um, in the underground temple from the first book. So uh, Nakajima is just like bouncing around on the back of um, Kerberos, which is a weird version of uh, Cerberus, the Greek uh, Hound of Hades, which uh, 
in the myth is like a multi-headed dog. So I think Kerberos only has one head. I could be wrong about that. And I don't think he has uh, snakes for tails. And then there's this other plot line that's going on where there's a guy in America who wants to, who's on the side of set and basically wants to take over the world. And he comes to Japan and starts uh, using snakes that come out of set to take over Japanese officials. And then his brother is trying to uh, fight against him with the help of Nakajima, who uh, for a few chapters is trying to work on a way to hack the demons back into the demon realm and then about halfway through the book just turns into a badass warrior uh running around japan with a flaming sword in his hand on the back of a uh demon dog did i miss anything from the main plot there as far as i remember yeah it just sort of just sort of ends honestly i mean i mean clearly he wanted to write the trilogy because the third book clearly ends the cycle of these characters. Even though we couldn't read the third book, no one has ever translated it in English. But apparently that's because nobody cares enough to do that. Yeah, yeah, and I've actually read comment threads on the uh, on some of the uh, translation boards and people have been like, yeah, you know, I put a lot of work into translating the first one or second one or helping out editing it. And uh, yeah, nobody seems to really want to. I want to take a crack at the third one. We are missing out on something very important, though, which is the, at certain point, the American government decides that the only way to destroy Set is to beam him into space with a uh, satellite. Ah, yes. How could I forget? Yeah, the book ends with a battle between Set, uh, this giant flesh tower, and uh, Nakajima with his giant magic flaming sword in space. Which, I mean, when you think about the level of escalation in the first book, he's just like this like nerdy hacker guy. Uh, he starts out, and by the end of the second book, he's uh, in a uh, sword fight with a god in space, um, which is the worst anime levels of escalation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so th those are the books. Book three, Nakajima dies. He Hooray! It, it takes place after the first game, so we still have to deal with him for the entirety of the first game. I think that, that does it for the books. Uh and clearly none of us, I don't think, recommend you read them. I think you're safe no. to skip them. You're good. You didn't miss anything. These characters don't talk a single time in the entirety of the game we're about to play. You know what's way better than all those books that we read? Uh, the intro video to the first game. Yes! Which tells us the exact plot of those books. So are we, are we diving right into Megami Tensai 1? Oh god, please. Ah, here we go. Away from those stupid books. So we get uh, we get a brief summary of the books real quick. And the, the way the translation that we has starts out says an ancient legend talks of angels falling from heaven. And I have a question for you guys. Is, is it an ancient legend if it's based off an epic poem from the 1400s? No, it's 1600s because it's modern English. Yeah, you're saying it's based on Paradise Lost. 
Yes. Yes, I am. I mean, I think this is, I mean, this kind of gets the charm of the uh, Megami Tensei games. Um, and one of the things that, you know, it's not a unique observation to point out, but, uh, you know, one of the charms is that it treats Christian mythology as just, like, yet another, you know, crazy set of legends that we can throw in there with, like, ancient Greek legends and Egyptian legends and even weird, like, folklore monsters from around the world. And they're all demons, and they're all thrown into one. <laughs> yeah, it gives I... Yahweh equal treatment to a Japanese river spirit. Yes. So, uh, in the intro video, we're basically told, hey, that whole uh, Loki set thing, yeah, that was, that was some small-time stuff. The real bad guy is Lucifer, the fallen angel from heaven. And, basically, the world's fucked, you gotta go kill Lucifer and maybe fix this shit. There are some mystical uh, mystical buildings that uh, grew out of... Basically, I'm pretty sure it's the same area where Izanami's grave was, correct? I don't think it's I, I don't think it's explicit, but yeah, I think it's implied. So, the that same area where, that, where all the stuff went down in the first book, these buildings arise, and we start out on the eighth floor of Daedalus Tower. So... Here we are in the game, guys. We start off right in a dungeon. You are never not in a dungeon. There are no overworlds. It's always first-person view, which honestly, when I started the game, was a little surprising, but I guess it makes sense. You get used to it, but it is kind of exhausting always being in that one view with that pretty low frame rate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and say this now, and it's a, it's a point that pretty much... Throughout this entire game, playing this on emulator all is almost essential because there were so many things that if I didn't have an emulator would have driven me up the fucking wall. <laughs> oh my god, yes. Oh god, yeah. I mean, you know, without save states and fast forward, the, this would be a very, very painful experience. <laughs> it, it took... It took about 15 hours before I realized there was an auto-battle command. Yeah, that which is insane to me, Evan. I, <laughs> that really must have sucked. So progression in this game is very much like a dragon quest where there's sort of, there are going to be things blocking your path and you're going to have to find keys in the dungeon to move forward. But let's start off on this first floor. In fact, let's start off on this very first screen. Let's explain the screen that we got in front of us here. So you got your general area screen where you're just seeing what's in front of you, first person view. You can see doors and hallways in front of you up to a certain distance. I think you can see three or four tiles away before it just starts fading into nothingness. In your upper left corner, you've got a few meters. You've got your moonlight meter, which affects how you can recruit demons. Uh, who remembers the rules for the moon? Because I, I can't remember them at all. I, I do. Essentially, uh, the, the the bigger the phase of the moon, the better the demons. And I think the way it plays out is if it's a full moon, demons are crazy. You can't talk to them, and they're more powerful. If it's a new moon, demons are weaker. Uh, and that's actually... It's kind of suggested in other games, uh, not this one, uh, that the best time to fight a boss is during New Moon because they'll be weaker and they'll have less HP. Uh, I'm not sure if that actually is the case in this game, uh, but that's how it manifests eventually. Going through guides, it seems that the NES version of the game played up the Moonlight stuff more. Like, there are uh, certain passageways near the end of the game that won't appear if you show up on the night of the full moon, but it didn't seem to matter so much on the SNES version. 
Well, it's also worth pointing out that the guides are... There are not very many guides for this game. Uh, it's it's nowhere near as popular as the first like main SMT game, the first main Shin Megami game was. Oh, absolutely. I, had, I definitely had to cobble together multiple sources to make sure I was doing the right thing a few times. Oh, yeah. like I, I wasn't used to such helpful advice as, oh, this boss isn't too much trouble, or I didn't have a problem with him whenever I fought him. Or nothing happens on this floor. Yeah, we, we are talking about a very specific <laughs> game FAQ's guide for this game that is, at points, very helpful, and at other points, it tells you nothing. Um, yeah, which again, like, this stuff is free, so like, I appreciate that somebody is out there doing it, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of frustrating when that's the only resource. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that in my play of the game, the moon cycles seem to have a certain amount of uh, role in how feisty the demon demons are, as uh, right. you put it, Evan. But once I realized that, or one of you guys told me that intelligence um, really helps with demon negotiations, I didn't really see much difference between the different moon phases. I, I, so I have I ended up the game. I don't know what's your guys. You guys are still only about halfway through the game, right? That's yeah. correct. Yeah. How how high is your intelligence stat on um, uh, Nakajima specifically? I want to say so. I'm level thirty three with him right now, and I want to say it's around eleven. 11 so I, to 14. I finished the game with 12 intelligence and I never ran into too much trouble with that. And that was after I had already maxed out his his two stats that you have to max out. Uh, so this is another problem with not having many guides for the game. Uh, the Famicom guide says that intelligence affects uh, your demon negotiation success rate. The Super Famicom guide basically says, oh, I put everything into vitality and strength, so don't worry about it. Well, I don't know, because I don't know if that's true, because I restarted it after I found out about the uh, intelligence and had a lot more luck with uh, summoning de demons or negotiating with demons. That FAQ may not be entirely correct. My my uh, intelligence is at 13, I think. I mean, yeah, keep in mind that the, that, that specific fact is for the NES version of the game. And and yeah. he and he, you know, they're not they're not infallible. Um but that actually brings up a very good point about the stats, and we, we actually skipped over this. The first thing you do in the game is, one, name your two protagonists. I mean, canonically, they are Nakajima and Yumiko, but of course, like most JRPGs, you can just name them whatever you want. Um, and then, right after that, you have to distribute their stat points, which is actually pretty rare for a JRPG. And every time you level up, you get an additional stat point to put into one of their stats. I believe it's... Um, Strength, vitality, intelligence, speed, and luck. Uh, I assume luck mostly affects item drop rates, maybe like um, mag mag drop rate. I think it also affects uh, critical hit chance and the chance that an enemy will critically hit you. Oh, that does make sense. And, and I assume speed is mostly for, um, you know, how fast you attack and getting away from battle. Uh, yeah, and also evasion. Ah, yes, evasion. So, I, like I said, I, I ended up with most of my stats pretty low, except for um, uh, strength and vitality. Uh, from what I can tell, uh, the, the main two defensive stats are strength and intelligence. Uh, strength makes you take less damage from physical attacks. Intelligence makes you take less damage from magical attacks. And then, like you mentioned, uh, speed uh, reduces the chance for all attacks to hit. 
Yeah, and I think for Yumiko uh, pouring some intelligence stat uh, intelligence in uh, increases her magic stats. Yeah, it definitely seems to affect damage for spells. Uh, so with her, I dumped a little bit into vitality, a little bit into luck and speed, but most of it into intelligence because uh, for most of the game, it, it's strange. Like magic seems like the most important thing in all the other Shin Megami games, but for this game. Magic only seems useful for grinding uh, the regular enemies. Uh, I haven't yet encountered a boss fight where magic actually was kind of worth casting. Uh, Loki kind of, but for the most part, I was just hitting attack for every character or heal, and that was it. Yeah, I mean, I think with the onset, especially of the uh, press turn system, which came about uh, with uh, SMT Nocturne for the, uh, for the PS2, um, that became a lot more important because the idea in the press turn system is that if you use a form of magic that the enemy is weak to, you basically get an extra turn. And I didn't really notice any dynamics, you know, where there was like really strong elemental weaknesses or uh, strengths among any of the battles I was in. Yeah, magic is pretty weak in this game. I mean, Yumiko is pretty much... Uh, she's she's forced into the role of healer. That pretty much is her main function. But, I mean, she does end up having some more functions later in the game. Um, did you guys want to talk about stats anymore, or can I move on? I'm good. All right, so, so uh, back up in the upper left corner, we have your moon gauge, and then underneath that is your mag counter. That's just your money. It could be yen, but they chose mag for some reason. Um, is that a standard? Is that a Shin Megami Tensai standard? I don't even remember. So there are, there are two currencies in the SMT games. Uh, one of them is MACA, and that's the yin equivalent. Oh, MACA. Yeah, MAGA MAGA is, is the other thing. Yeah, MAGA is the thing that keeps the demons alive. Which is what we'll talk about in a second. Then <laughs> uh, the other is yen, right? They just use yen in the Persona games. Uh, basically, though, the breakdown is if a game is post-apocalyptic, it's probably MACA. If it takes place in the current real world, it's probably yen. Oh, okay. So under that, we had uh, Magnetite, uh, or MAG for short which is a collectible that you get for defeating demons, and you can have up to 9,999 of it. And you use mag, if you have demons summoned in your party, you use up mag for every step. And the more powerful the demon, the more mag you use up. By the end of the game, I was using almost 80 to 90 mag per step. But at the beginning of the game, you're using one, two, three, five, pretty low numbers. Um, and it... it you can run out. It doesn't happen too often, and when it does, you usually get it back up pretty quickly. Uh, and when you do have it run out, pretty much all that happens is that now, instead of re uh, reducing your amount of mag every step, the game will subtract HP from your demons at the rate of 1 HP per step. It's not a huge uh, deterrent for running out of mag, to be perfectly honest. It's not a big deal. No, and you can see why they did that. Uh, it seems like the idea was we don't want to make it so people can just grind out a bunch of levels, summon a really powerful demon, and then blow through the game. Uh, so certain points in the early game where demons might have 40 HP tops, uh, mag is actually a pretty big problem. Like if you have all your demons summoned and they're all the highest level demons you could afford or you're able to summon, you might run out. Uh, but then as soon as you get to the mid game, it's yeah, it stops being an issue at all. 
So on your, so let's see, on the bottom part of your screen, you have your party roster. You'll always have Nakajima and Yumiko. Even when they faint, you can uh, you can bring them back to life. But if you, if any of your demons faint, they go for good. And uh, you start off with two people because you haven't recruited any demons yet. It takes you a minute to do that. And then uh, I think that's most of everything on your screen. You can, uh, not I. Do you ha do you start with the Mapara spell? I think you do. You can cast Mepara to have a mini-map uh, show up on your play screen, which you don't absolutely have to do in the SNES version, because you could just press L to see uh, an auto-generated map of where you've already stepped on the floor. But Mepara is obviously more convenient most of the time. Just even finding that, uh, that map on the left bumper was a revelation. I think I got through like the first two or three floors without even realizing that there was a map that existed without having to uh, cast the Mapara spell. Which is but like, I, the, the Mapara spell doesn't even tell you if it's an up or a down stair. You have to find that out yourself. Yeah, the Mapara scale spell is kind of a neat companion to the map, but it doesn't replace it. Uh, and I actually had a recurring problem throughout this game where I'd have to cast that spell three, four times until it would actually take effect, and then it would stop working early, and it was just... I, I don't know if I ran into a bug or if I applied my English patch wrong, but yeah, that, that spell was no under trouble for me this game. That's really strange. I do wonder, because there are sections of the game that don't play nice with the Mapara spell, if you were maybe just in one of those sections, but I don't think you were far enough for that to be able, for that to be a problem for you, you know? Uh, yeah, it, it started like sixth floor of the Daedalus Tower. Yes, yeah, so yeah, that's very odd. So we're on the uh, we're on the first floor of the Daedalus Tower. Um, up the here is floor. a village. Oh, you're right. The eighth floor. We start at the top. Well, this is a tower that we're working our way to the bottom. Strangely enough, there's a village at the top of the Steaming Tower. It's a village with an armor shop and a weapon shop because. I mean, who's coming here? Who's coming here and who needs to set up a shop for armor and weapons? You're, the main characters are the entire economy. Did these people get lost? I mean, <laughs> they just well, no, no. ended up at the top of the tower and decided to open a shop. I can definitively say they did not get lost. They've lived there the entire time. That, that is information you get at the end of the game, and it just makes you question everything even more. So up here, you got a weapon shop, you got an armor shop. You got your uh, cathedral of uh, cathedral shadows, where you can fuse demons once you get them. Um, how would you describe? What's the perfect language to talk about those wonderful statues behind the rabbi? Cyberdicks. Cyberdicks. Yes. <laughs> and there's a couple of star davids around there too. So. You know, penis monsters on the whole are relatively low in number in this particular game. I think during my playthrough, I saw one very phallic monster and you couldn't even recruit it into your party. Yeah, that, that imagery definitely shows up a little bit later, but this is a pretty this is a pretty tame game for a Shin Megami game. Yeah, yeah, it definitely doesn't go. It doesn't doesn't get too crazy, but we do see some interesting stuff at least. So let's see what else. Uh, what else do we got here? Uh, do, 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 do. We got a healing room. We got a save guy, and uh, we got some various hints. I don't think anyone tells you anything in terribly important. Like somebody, I think, says like negotiating with demons is key, and 
Yes. Very basic uh, hints and tips for your playthrough. And at the first stairs, uh, going down into uh, seventh floor of Daedalus, there's uh, some Viking-looking guy warning you about the demons. You you will run in through to several like Viking guys. Their role is to just protect the borders of cities in this game. That is their only function. And so once you're in the seventh floor of Daedalus, uh, it's pretty slow moving at first. You got to grind a few levels before most demons will even talk to you. I think you got to be like level two or three before you're able to recruit the most basic demons because the first few things you'll run into are going to be a few levels ahead of you. Uh, so I think part of that might be the intelligence mechanic. Is True. Uh, the, the first couple times I dove into the dungeon, I got killed immediately and sent back to the save screen and learned my save state lesson right away. Uh, <laughs> and then after a couple tries, like, I was able to finally talk to a demon that was able to understand me. Because well, one of the things about this game is there's actually not that many demons that can talk to you. Uh, but I found a dwarf and I talked to him and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you, you sound good. Uh, you don't have any money, but yeah, sure, I'll join you. And that was it. And uh, once I got the first demon, kind of the the brakes were off and they just started rolling. But there, there was a good 20 minutes where I just could not make progress, could not get past the first fight. And I think part of that might have been that I had built a character that was had a lot of vitality, had a decent amount of intelligence, but wasn't a very heavy hitter. Yeah, and per chance, did you maybe not buy a weapon in the first in the first shop I, th I bought I bought a weapon but I didn't have the strength to really make it very effective uh, okay because you do you, I think you start out unarmed and you have to buy something from the weapon and armor shop before you head down um, and, it's, and you start off with like something like 800 mecha so you can't buy a ton but you buy you know something that'll hold you over for a little bit so uh, let's talk about demon recruitment since we just got to this part. So when you are recruiting a demon, you get four options. You have bribe, um, or offer, was it? It was offer. Offer, persuade, soothe, and intimidate. So intimidate tends to only work when you're significantly higher level than the demon you're trying to recruit, um, as far as I understand it. Because when I was very endgame level and I was just grinding for demons for fusion... I could intimidate usually, and they would just join me pretty quick. Um, when you're low level, they'll just attack you back, really. Persuade, I think that is, is reliant on intelligence. I think the higher your intelligence is, the more likely you can just say, hey, why not join us? And they're just like, okay. Uh, so I've never had Persuade actually do anything for me. Uh, no matter how high it was whenever I've tried it, and again, like I've only ever got it to like 11 to 14. Uh, but it's always said, like, hmm, turn against him. That's interesting. Or something like, I don't know why, but you seem trustworthy. And then if I if I then went on to offer, they seem more likely to join me. Yeah, so I was going to say, messing with save states, the, the only time I've found Persuade to be useful is I'll, I'll do offer a few times, and I'll reload the save state, and, like, it'll never work. And then I'll do Persuade, and then they'll take, like, two, uh, two offerings of Maka and then join me. So I think you're right that it's that's pretty much its own most more than likely that's the only function. But I think if you get high enough intelligence, you could maybe just hit it and they'll join you. But that's been mostly my experience as well. But I think persuade maybe softens them up a bit. You know, if you try persuade, then you give them an offering. Um, oftentimes, if you just do a straight up offering, they'll pull the uh, SMT dick move and uh, just take your money twice and go away. 
So yeah. it, in my experience, like doing a little persuading and then offering and then a little more persuading and then offering has uh, netted me a lot more demons. Yeah, the only one, the only option that I never found a, 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 an outright use for is soothe. Soothe just seems to exist. Yeah, there's never really a point where you just want to, it's like, you know what, I don't want to fight you, I don't want to escape, and I don't want to try to get you on my team. It's not really a useful thing to do. No. Yep, so bribe, offer, is your is your main tool for recruiting demons. Oftentimes at Smaka, every once in a while they'll ask for an item. Um, pretty much it's just jewels, and jewels are your way of healing. Uh, when you, they're, they're the potion of this game. Yeah, and nobody seems too mad if you tell them, no, you can't have a jewel. Uh, usually they'll just be like, oh, I'm upset, but I'll take some Mecca instead. Yeah, I got some of the some of the rejection text for the demons is pretty great. When like you'll offer them a few a few offerings of maca, and then they'll just go, "Well, see ya." <laughs> yeah, so uh, and so left satisfied. Yeah. Oh man. Oh, there was a. I ran into a Cerebus, and I tried to talk to him, and the only response I got. This is the only time in the game this happened, but it was in all capital letters. Do you understand our feelings? And then if I said yes, it would leave. And if I said no, it would just stay there to fight. It was weird. I didn't understand that, but. I mean, maybe that's a reference to the novel because he kind of treats his Cerberus like shit in the book. Mm -hmm. Maybe. And especially because I never saw it on a monster other than Cerberus. That could very well be it. Cerberus just wants to be heard and he just wants his, you know, he just wants people <laughs> to be there for him and. Just, yeah, I just, I just want to talk about my feelings, guys. Yeah. I mean, I know there's this, this, this world-ending threat, but can we just, can we just talk about our emotions for a moment? <laughs> uh, so pretty much, this, this demon interaction is your only, the only time that the characters talk. I'm doing air quotes with my hands. Talk in the game, um, and besides that, they, they are completely silent protagonists that you can project your own hopes and desires onto, and they're you for the most part. Which, considering what we know about Nakajima, is for the best yes. from the novels. <laughs> so, seventh floor, Daedalus, not much. You find a message that says demons are terrifying in the moonlight, which is your hint, like, you know, watch the moon system. Uh, full moon's going to fuck you up if you're not ready. But, guys, I was over-leveled this entire game. My level was never a problem. It was the only time that I ever got behind was if my demon's level fell too far behind. Uh, there, there was one point where it was a problem for me, but then it turns out it's because it, it was the Loki fight, and it turns out it was because I missed half the dungeon I was supposed to go through before finding him. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, I, I assume we'll get to that in just a little bit. So Daedalus is pretty straightforward. Uh, there's, uh, it's, it's an eight-floor dungeon. It counts all the way down to floor one. Uh, floor one has Minotauros, who is the tyrant that is ruling over the entire Daedalus Tower, um, there's, there's an elevator on every single floor, but you can't use it every time it says this elevator is sealed by evil magic, which is something that you should get used to. But yeah, it's, it's pretty uneventful. You fight a bunch of monsters, the monsters get progressively, uh, stronger, and then eventually you find yourself on the first floor. Uh, the first floor is the biggest one yet. It's uh, relatively three times the size of the average floor of the Daedalus Tower so far, and it connects to a small town in the quarter of Valhalla. Uh, this town, frustratingly, doesn't have a healer or a Cathedral of Shadows. You can buy some new gear, you can check out a couple of little hits and, tin uh, hints and tips, 
and you can meet a Viking who won't let you pass through the area. While I while I think it's frustrating in the moment that that town doesn't have a healer or a save point, I think I understand why they did it, especially when you finally worked your way to the area after Minotaurus. I guess, is there really that much to say about Daedalus Tower? I think we might have covered it all already. Uh, th- there's one other little piece. Um, there, there's a there's a weird kind of uh, area that you can only get to once you've beat the boss. Uh, so we, we can go ahead and jump to the boss, uh, Minotaurus. Uh, like most bosses in this game, he has strong physical attacks, uh, and that's kind of it. He resists almost everything that you throw at him. The bosses in this game seem less like puzzle bosses, or less like uh, a unique challenge like in some of the other SMT games, and more like a level check. Uh, they want to make sure that you've leveled up enough and that you have strong enough demons to resist his attacks, and if you do, the fight is basically just going to take X amount of turns and then you're done. Uh, there's no real strategy or tactics to it beyond that. Yeah, it is a bit disappointing in that way. It's I, I was definitely hoping that there would be a point where it's like, oh, I figured out this boss, but it, pretty much every time... I tried any kind of magic, I would find most of it was resisted or it was smarter to attack instead of using that magic. So pretty much every boss fight boiled down to Nakajima attack, Yumiko heal, all the demons attack, attack, attack. Not quite not quite putting it on auto battle, but pretty damn close. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of battles that I just auto battled through once I was leveled up enough. I mean, there's, there's really no reason not to unless you want to actually try and recruit. But, um, you know, I do think one, when I was looking up some of the mythology behind uh, some of the different demons and figures in here, uh, there's a little, little note from Greek mythology. His, uh, the Minotaur was a creature with the head of a bull and the body of a man. The Minotaur dwelt at the center of the labyrinth, which was an elaborate maze-like construction designed by the ar- architect Daedalus and his son Icarus on the command of King Minos of Crete. So that's where you get your Daedalus. Um, just another example of uh, Mega Ten games just kind of like being a mashup of all kinds of different legends and whatnot. I never made the connection between Minotaurus and Daedalus, but that actually does make a little more sense than I was giving it credit for because the entire time I was like, I don't understand why they had to randomly attach the Daedalus myth to this. There's no Icarus. There's no wax wings. What is this? But uh, so you get you get past Minotaurus. And uh, what, what do you you said there was a small area past Minotaurus, Evan. What are you talking uh, about? Yeah. Uh, so once you get past Minotaurus, if you take uh, Minotaurus unlocks the elevator with the Orb of Silence, uh, so you can now travel up and down Daedalus Tower freely. And uh, I don't remember which floor this is. But oh, it's, uh, floors... it's floor three. Oh uh, yeah, floor floor three has an area that you can only get to from the elevator uh, that contains the shield of one of the guards in that small town that is in the uh, quarter of Valhalla. I don't think that town actually has a name, but um, if you get the shield, this guard, he's not supposed to let anyone leave the area, uh, but he makes an exception for you if you bring his shield back, which a goblin stole. Yeah, no, that town definitely doesn't have a name. It's just the the outskirts of Sky City. Um, but yeah, you get... So yeah, if you get that dungeon, that's the first like lock and key system that I was talking about earlier. And most of the times I was able to find the key well before I found the lock um, in, in kind of a weird way. And in, sometimes I would even solve the puzzle completely before I found hints in the dungeon telling me what to do, which I found super odd. But I, 
I'm not sure if they just expected you to explore further than what I assumed was normal, because there were definitely hints for things way later than I ever would have encountered them. Well, the other thing that's worth bringing up is that this is a game from... Uh, the original game is from 1987. Uh, this is an era where it wasn't uncommon for role-playing games to have information that only exists in the manual that it assumes you've already read and that you're familiar with. Uh, I couldn't find a translation of the manual, so it's possible that some of the stuff that we're criticizing the game for was something that they expected players to have, but we just don't have access to playing it, you know, almost 30 years later. Very true. So we, uh, once we're past Minotaur, we, we sort of enter two interlocking areas. We've got uh, the Corridor of Valhalla, which sort of takes place as this giant square with another tinier square in the middle cut out of it. And that, that other tinier square, when you reach the edge of the map and go into that cut out part of the map, is another area called Sky City. Now, you're in a position where you could, you could explore either, but if you went down to the Valhalla Corridor and fought the monsters legitimately, you'd probably find that they were a bit too much for you to handle. So the only way to go is up to Sky City and see what's there. And since you just rescued the shield of the guard to Sky City, that seems like a good way to go. So once you're in Sky City proper, you start fighting monsters, uh, you go up to floor three, and then you have to actually work your way back down to floor two in a weird sort of uh, trying to confuse you puzzle. And once you're down in floor two, you find out that everybody's been turned into stone. I wonder what that could be. Hmm. I know. There's so many possibilities. It's Medusa. Um, <laughs> Did every J, uh, JRPG of this time have uh, Medusa in it? Because I feel like... You gotta have one Medusa. Yeah. How else are you gonna? How else are you gonna teach everybody the importance of having an, a way to cure stone? You know. <laughs> oh yeah, petrify is one of the canonical RPG uh, status effects. You uh, you you can find out it's Medusa pretty easily. There's an NPC in the bottom in the floor of Valhalla Corridor who will tell you everyone's been turned to stone. It's Medusa's fault. Um, if you you know explore Sky City a little bit, you'll find some messages about the statue of Tabasa. And I'm pretty sure you just sort of find it in a in a chest, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, there's nothing really special about finding that treasure. Medusa doesn't guard it. And considering some of the shit you have to do to unlock the other uh, boss keys in the later of the game, it, it kind of feels like Medusa's slacking on the job. Well, so in kind of the way that the first boss, Minotaurus, felt like a level check to make sure you're not blowing through levels too fast... Uh, the Medusa one felt like an auto-map check to make sure that you're not just blowing through without exploring each level entirely, because uh, the statue's kind of, like, tucked away back in the corner, a, a corner you wouldn't really reach unless you're specifically trying to map out the entire level. Oh, true, true. The, the, there's another gimmick to that little corner I'm remembering, um, and that's the first room where you'll find tiles where nothing is there, but you'll receive damage if you step on them. So not only is it an auto-map check, check it's also a are you drawing a map with notes check but now that we're in the age of the internet i of course cheated like crazy oh of course of course and there's maps to all <laughs> these levels uh on uh game facts so so you work your way to the corner get that statue tabasa work your way all the way up to the fourth floor of sky T city nothing much happens on floor three i don't think um Oh, you have to find, actually, you have to find a key 
to get into the room where the statue of Tabasa is. I think it's called the Bull Key. And I don't actually remember what you had to do to get it, but... I, I want to say, I think Minotauros drops it. Oh, yeah. Which makes very little sense, considering you can't get the shield to open up the door to Sky City without beating Minotauros, but... So you don't get uh, you don't get the bull key from defeating Medusa. You actually get a second key. I think called the uh, recreation room key. Uh, but there's you get uh, yeah that's right yeah you get one key to go get the statue to Tabasa, and then you beat her and get the second key and then we'll get to that in a second. But so we have the statue of Tabasa now. We work our way up to the fourth floor, um, and we get to Medusa. And you know, I'm not, I'm just now noticing we guys we haven't talked at all about our, our our team makeup for these fights at all. I mean, did you guys find any uh, demons in your playthrough that you really liked at this point in the game, or were they all pretty just help me get through the game kind of demons? Uh, for the first part of the game, I really liked Cerberus, but um, because he had a ton of HP, uh, but he became very useless pretty quickly because his attacks would only sometimes hit. Uh, Early on, they would target the entire enemy team, but later on, it'd do no damage to everybody. Yeah, I stuck with Cerberus a lot uh, early on as well, uh, partially because of uh, your recommendations on the thread that we had going. And then, you know, I would tend to try and experiment with other ones and then make a terrible mistake and they would die... And I would not be able to summon them back because that is not a feature in this game. <laughs> yeah, once they're gone, they're gone. You can you just gotta recruit and fuse it all from the from scratch if you fuck. Uh, yeah, and it's worth pointing out that unlike the later games, demons do not level up in this game. So as soon as they cease to be useful, you just have to dump them. Yep, they have they have their starting level, and that is it. Um, and that's you a also, frustration I think that goes into you know until like the PS2 era of games because I know that uh, Soul Hackers, which came out in the Saturn, I think the PlayStation has the same thing where you can't level up your uh, demons. Well, I mean, okay, so let's let that's that's part of the of this frustration, but you know I can live with that. It's not the biggest deal that they don't level up, but the real sucky part of this is two things one you have a pretty strict limit you can have four demons in your party and you can have seven demons in total recruited so you can have three on the bench for backup and four in your active party you once you recruit the demon and if you fuse that demon you just no longer have access to that previous demon you have to go get it again Mm -hmm. either through uh, recruitment or fusion and by the time you're at the end of the game the only way to get useful demons is through fusion and I, I I tell you guys I spent about 30 minutes the other night grinding for end game demons and once I had them the game went by incredibly smoothly but just that I ugh, doing that because you could to even find the demons you need for specific fusions is frustrating in and of itself. There's no way to control the demons you run into. Mm-hmm. And sometimes just the RNG is so thick on this game. You can save state, walk two steps, get into a fight, and then reload the save state, walk one step, get into a completely different fight. It's so strange. Final Fantasies and Dragon Quest don't work anywhere near that RNG heavy, you know? 
Yeah, the encounter rate is really, really high in this game. It's high and it's random, because you can also walk for, you know, 15... I've gone 15, 20 steps before, before I actually got into an encounter when I was trying to grind. And then when I was like, okay, I'm absolutely out of mana, I have no healing, it felt like I was getting steps... I was getting fights every single step. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely seems that there's a hidden bar, like, how how much do they actually need a fight? And the higher that bar is, the least likely you are to actually find a fight. Because well, I, I, I mean, definitely felt that I've, I've sort of gone through an entire floor just looking for battles to recruit demons for and, and finding almost nothing. Well, I mean, one of the things that happened to me is I got down to the first floor of Daedalus uh, underleveled just because the you know lower levels of it, I had not been coming across that many encounters. And then I got down there and I was, you know, got hit really hard. And I was like, oh, shit, I need to get back up to the top. Um, and so then once I started heading back up, I that's when, you know, the RNG started hitting me all the time. And I was just like, you know, basically safe stating out after every battle to get back to the top of Daedalus and be able to do get some upgrades and heal and do some demon fusion. Yeah, save stating is a, is really a godsend. Like I would, if I didn't have save states, I would still probably eventually beat this game, but it would have took taken forever. Oh yeah, and it's worth pointing out that at this point in the game, the only save point that you have is that very first save point at the eighth floor of Daedalus Tower. Uh, there's a shortcut you can use to get back there faster in that one unnamed town we mentioned in the quarter of Valhalla. Uh, there's an NPC called the Hypnotist who will send you back to the eighth floor of Daedalus. And it's not a, it's not, it doesn't take too long to get from Daedalus back to Sky City BN, but uh, you're still dealing with the very first save, save point from the very first instant of the game at this point. Yeah, and they are more lenient on that the further you get into the game, but it, it, it never, it never feels like there are an appropriate number of save points. Never once, really. Um, uh, definitely. So, you finally get, oh, and I actually, back to my first point of cool demons. At this point in the game, the one demon I had that I really liked uh, was Kawancha, which is this pretty sick-looking skeleton dude with a scimitar. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah I like him a lot. Um, not that he did any cool spells or nothing, but he, uh, you know, he was fun to have. And you don't see your demons or anything, so the ones that actually look cool, you can pretty much go into your start menu and look at them, but that's about it. Well, at this point in the game, the most impressive demons are the one that can the ones that can hit really hard and really reliable against a boss. And he seemed to be more of a strength-focused demon. And uh, when we were actually when I was actually fighting Medusa, he was super great to have on my team. Again, like I still had Cerberus at this point. Cerberus did absolutely nothing that entire fight, so it was nice having somebody that hit a little bit harder. Uh, it's also worth pointing out Cerberus can revive. That revive can fail. Uh, you can only revive a a, a PC, a party member. Uh, you can only revive Nakajima or uh, uh, Yumiko, and that that fails more often than it succeeds for me, which is very frustrating. You know, I actually got through the whole game without having to cast a revive. Oddly enough, so it's kind of weirdly broken. Uh, there was a couple points where I tried to take advantage of it, but the unreliability kind of threw it for a loop. Uh, when you revive somebody, it restores all of their MP. So if you if you grind too much or you fight too long and you use up all of all of your secondary character's MP, you can revive her and then all of a sudden she's back with full, full health and full MP. Weird. 
Okay, so we uh, we get up to Medusa. Is there anything to say about this boss fight? You, uh, oh, you, she, she threatens you when you walk in. She says, I'm going to turn you into stone. Then she, she, assumedly, you come here without the statue of Tabasa first, get turned into stone. The game goes, ha ha, like Nelson from The Simpsons at your face. <laughs> and um, then you go back and try to find the statue of Tabasa. But at, at this I found the statue of Tabasa way before I got here. Um, and then, uh, so she tries to turn you into stone. The statue of Tabasa reflects the gaze. And then she's not able to cast stone on you throughout the entire fight. And uh, you fight her. She resists magic, so you just you, you punch her a bunch, or slash her with your sword or <laughs> your whips or whatever. And that's, yep, and then she dies. Yeah, the that's Sky City. Not particularly strategic. <laughs> and there were actually there were a couple of mini bosses in that area that were just shadow medusas, uh, but they are basically the same thing as that fight without a statue. They they don't hit particularly hard, and they resist everything. So you just punch them till they're dead. Yep. And your reward is an orb. It's not the orb of silence. It's the orb of something else. I can't remember. Um, if anyone remembers it off the top of their head, but if not, we'll just move on. And that, of course, unlocks the elevator for the entirety of Sky City. And she also drops a key to the BN recreational area. I said it sounds so pleasant. <laughs> yeah, the, the recreational area? Yeah, it's very pleasant. And it actually is pretty pleasant when you get there. Yeah, all things considered. <laughs> uh, weirdly enough, all the women in this area are wearing heels and fishnets, which is interesting considering it's deep within a uh, demon stronghold. Uh, far, 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 far away from any sort of humanity and civilization, but that doesn't stop them from having like a weirdly tropical-themed uh, gambling parlor. Maybe they're in love with uh, Loki, like uh, the teacher in the novels. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, you go you go down to floor two, and that's where you find the actual Sky City. It was the only part of the entire dungeon that you were cut off from originally when you explored, besides where they kept the statue of Tabasa. And you get there, and you find the, the standard array of stuff. You got your armor shop, you got your weapon shop, you got your healer, you got your saver. Uh, el the village elder is what they're called, technically. And then you got your cathedral shadows. Those are your standard functions. You're pretty much going to find those in every single village, along with an assortment of colorful NPCs. And I say colorful, they'll say, like, one thing that's kind of useful, and then you never talk to them again. Um, so in this village, we also have a bar, which, I, which was very interesting. You can buy a drink for 100 maka. Uh, all that happens is your character says it was delightful or something along those lines. I do not think it provides any sort of benefit. It's just a way to waste your money. No, it doesn't. Yeah. I, I did think it was cute, though, so I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. Um, and you can also talk to some two bar patrons there. They don't tell you anything particularly useful. Something about an old man who can help you with something. There's a lot of talk of old men who can help you with things. There's a strange old man over there. There's a strange old man over there. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I do like about the game, you know, for an RPG of its vintage, is that, you know, even though the NPCs are very terse and they don't do a whole lot, there's not a ton of them that you have to talk to. I mean, that's one thing that I find when I go back to old RPGs. It's really frustrating. It's like, 
oh, there's 30 NPCs in this town, and I have to talk to all of them to find one that has useful information for me. And You're right. There, I think there is only one NPC that has an event trigger in the entire game. And we have we, we do not encounter it in this episode. Uh, I think there's actually... There's one more. Um, the guy that you gave the shield to, If I think if you go back after beating Medusa, he gives you a talisman that you can that can help you on the next fight. Oh, yes. Laura's talisman, which you do need. Um, uh, but yeah, essentially, aside from him, who's a guy you cannot miss because the other guy will not... Uh, there, there are two guards on that floor, and the other guy will not let you pass at this point in the game, so... Oh, no, once you beat Medusa, he lets you pass. Okay. Yeah, he, he, he's, he, he recognizes your strength once you've defeated Medusa, and then he reluctantly allows you passage through his entrance of Sky City. So the, uh, the other thing in uh, Sky City is we got two gambling places. We got a standard slots machine, and then we got a small game. We got a game called Big and Small. Uh, which I immediately thought was a clothing store whenever I went there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like, oh, that's a weird... Big, big and tall store, big and small, okay. What exactly are you... Big chest, small waist? Is that what you're going for, game? Um, so we got a big and small, and it's a big and small. I, I mess with it through save states. Uh, you put up like 100 maca up front. You guess. They'll show you a number. It's going to be five at the start. And then... Oh, it's always five. You're always guessing if the next number is going to be bigger or smaller than five. So it's a 50-50 shot no matter what. And basically every time you uh, bet more maca, uh, it'll double every time. So it's 100, 200, 400. And I think it caps out at 64,000 uh, or 6,400. I'm sorry. But and you get a few items, but none of them are anything really great. Like one of them's um, the magic drink you can take that will temporarily increase your MP. And I think that's one of the higher tier items you can win. Uh, but that's pretty much it for big and small. I didn't mess with slots at all because slots uh, suck and I hate them. Mm -hmm. Yep, it's super tedious. Very, very tedious. And that's pretty much it for Sky City. Um, you do you have access to the captain. And you can use him right now, but we shouldn't use him. We'll get back to that later. Um, the Sky City and, is not as exciting as a area called the Sky City should be. Oh. <laughs> no, no. no uh, the most exciting quite. part of this entire area is if you view it. So if you bring up your map uh, by hitting the L, the L or the R button, I uh, can't remember which, and then you hit that button, to, yeah, hit L twice, it'll bring you up a world map. It's like, oh. It's a floating city, hence the name Sky City. Aside from that, no other reference to it, no real, nothing, nothing really interesting about it aside from that one little view on the it's map. It's just another dungeon, but it happens yeah. to be in the sky, which is a thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, Sky City does have an extra function, but it doesn't really come up until we're in the, the fourth area of the game, which we'll get to next episode, so we'll talk about that then. Um, so we get all, we go all the way back down to the Corridor of Valhalla. Now it's time to start exploring Corridor of Valhalla proper. And what you end up finding out about the Corridor of Valhalla is it's split into two levels that are both about eight sections big. And those eight sections, so you're constantly going up and down the stairs trying to fill out this map. And uh, you, it's basically, it's the square around Sky City, like I described earlier. 
And when you're down in the quarter of Valhalla, the monsters are stronger. You should have fused a little by now. You should be good on your fusions for a while once you fuse for here because I, the next area is a, sl is a slight increase of difficulty. And then after that, more and more. But uh, you're exploring the corridor of Valhalla. I don't remember where these things are since it's a giant square. And I think this is the easiest level. This is the hardest level for me to think of like in, in my own head. I can picture the other levels pretty easily because I spent enough time in them. But this one is pretty labyrinthine. If it wasn't for the game facts uh, maps, I don't know if I would have made it through here. Yeah, it's it's difficult. So and during your course of exploring the corridor of Valhalla, you will find a man named Rick. And there was a there is an NPC in uh the first section of Corridor of Valhalla where you enter Sky City through that tells you about a man who's captured named Rick. And he was captured by Loki, and, and you don't really know what's up with that. Did you guys free Rick during your playthroughs? I never actually encountered mm -hmm. Rick. Uh, so what happened with me was I totally missed the, the basement floor of Corridor of Valhalla. I proceeded through the first floor, went on to fight Loki, and ended up having to grind in the next area in order to beat him, not realizing <laughs> that I... So, entire huge chunk of the dungeon. So, Evan, if you haven't found Rick yet, you really need to go back and get him. <laughs> I'm actually working. Yeah, you, you posted something in our group chat, and I, I went back. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, I forgot the whole, whole way of this dungeon. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I'm similar to you uh, here, Evan, is that I have this weird thing where I don't know if it's stubbornness or uh, stupidity, but uh, once I hit something that in a JRPG that... Uh, seems to be some kind of like puzzle type thing i will just like put the time in to completely grind and over level myself to uh get through rather than maybe finding the correct item or whatnot <laughs> well let's see how that works out for you later in the game well uh, <laughs> warning you now so anyway, you find Rick, he's chained up in a wall, and this isn't plot relevant now, but it's when I found it. I think it's when most people would find this, so I'm going to talk about it now. And uh, basically, he just asks, hey, can you help me get out of this? And if you say, actually, I don't know what happens if you say no. Could one of you guys test out what happens when you say no when you get to that? Just and tell me what happens. But if you say yes, no, it's no big event. It's not a trick. He's, he's a, He is a, a being that has been imprisoned by Loki. You let him out. He gives you Rick's bracelet. This is an important key item for pretty much the last dungeon in the game. So you're going to hold on to it forever. And then he, uh, if you have a free slot for a demon in your party, which I did not have when this happened, he will transform into a Lakshmi and join your party. And so you get a free demon out of it. And I think that Lakshmi will join you even if you aren't high enough level to fuse a Lakshmi, which is pretty cool. So they're just giving you a free higher level demon right there. That would have been real helpful going into my Loki fight, incidentally. Yeah, wouldn't it? <laughs> so also on floor two, you can find a room that spawns amethysts. And amethysts have two functions. The more gameplay oriented function is you can throw an amethyst in a fight and you can automatically run it doesn't matter what your stats are you will succeed in that runaway I'm not sure when that would really be relevant in this game well I guess when you're like low on health and like two tiles away from a healer or something 
but that's the only time I could really see it being incredibly useful. Go ahead. Oh, I said uh, I did not use the amethyst for that reason. Yeah, I never once used the amethyst for that reason. I never found an enemy. There's only one enemy in the game that I actively ran away from almost every time I encountered it because he would constantly spawn with nine or ten minions. And, you know, actually, one thing I don't think we mentioned is that it, random encounters will always only be one enemy type with the number of the number of enemies at the top of the screen mm -hmm. showing you how badly damaged they are. Like there are these little, like imagine those, you know, in the back of people's cars, they have those little family <laughs> stick figure things. So basically imagine those, <laughs> but like the more you beat on them, they start to crouch and then they turn red and then they finally disappear. That's how you know that you're winning the fight. The, the battle sprite is static pretty much yeah they don't give you yeah, any kind of hp for the demons or for the enemies um or anything like that and i think it's probably a legacy of it being originally a uh, nes rpg because i'm pretty sure the most 16-bit rpgs at the time were actually showing you all the enemies on the screen you know or at least the ones that i'm familiar with so with the amethyst in your hand, you now actually have the ability to go to an, a place called Rag Shop, which you can also find somewhere in the Valhalla Corridor. And at Rag Shop, if you go in there without an amethyst, he will say, I have no use for money. I only want rare gems. And if you come with an amethyst, he'll show you his wares. And this is at this, as far as we are in the game, is my favorite fuck you that it does so far. <laughs> <laughs> he gives you the choice of four items. He gives you, he, with no description of what they are, Dragon's Whisker, Call Thunder, Ares Necklace, and Magatama of Heaven. And you need Magatama of Heaven and Ares Necklace to advance the plot. And I will point out that as far as I'm aware, the Magatama of Heaven is never once, you were never once told that you need it. But if you don't have it, you can't use Ares Necklace when you're supposed to use it. It's also worth pointing out, you can't, act, as far as I can tell, there's no way to find out if you have that or not. Uh, so once you get the second Amethyst, if you go back to him, he'll sell you the same item again. And you can't go into your menu and check exactly what you bought the first time around. I, I, I think Ares Necklace will show up in your inventory. Uh, you have to, so go to where your, um where your weapon screen is and just hit right one more time than you're used to and you'll see your key items list but i don't okay i don't think magatama of heaven is in that list so i think you're kind of right there I, I never actually found the key items list so that's news to me it, it took me a few hours to notice it so i don't blame you i mean i think that's so, one of the uh one of the frustrations that i came across running through this game a lot was um there's no description for what the spells do. There's no description for what the items do. There's no description oh of which equipment uh, is appropriate for which member. So it's a lot of trial and error when it comes to that shit. And when you learn, when Yukiko, Yumiko learns a new spell, it doesn't even tell you what spell she learns. It just says, Yumiko learned a new spell. And you mm -hmm. just kind of have to flip through some menus until you figure out which one of these kind of similarly named spells is the new one. Yeah, if there, if there was one word I could use to summarize this entire game top to bottom, it would be opaque. <laughs> yeah. 
which huh. is which could be said about uh, many games in the uh, SMT series, but this one particularly. Yeah, it, it could it could go with a bit more telling us what's going on, but that's okay. We're, we'll make it through. So, in this in rag shop, let's say you get Ares necklace and Magatom of Heaven, or better yet, let's say you don't know what any of these items are. Let's say you're let's say you look at the list and you're like, well, let's try Dragon's Whisker. Dragon's Whisker's fine. It heals everybody. You waste an amethyst. And the good thing about that amethyst spot on the corridor of Valhalla is once you take the amethyst, trade it into Rag Shop, you can just go right back to there, grab another amethyst, go right back to Rag Shop. You can do that as many times as you want, as far as I'm aware. It's tedious, but you can do it. So, <laughs> you pick Call Thunder. I... All Call Thunder does is strike lightning out of the sky onto your entire party. Everyone takes damage. <laughs> That's all it does. That's it's wonderful. Such a classic <laughs> SMT fuck you. I can see why he doesn't take money for his services. Because <laughs> <laughs> then people could demand refunds. Um, so uh, you, you clear out Ares Necklace and Magatom of Heaven. They're in your, Ida, you're, they're in your uh, inventory. Say you go get an Amethyst the third time. Come back. He's going to have an option called London Boots. If you pick London Boots, all it does is transport you to Mekon Village. You shouldn't do that. There's actually a hypnotist on the second floor of Sky City that you can just use, and he'll transport you to Mekon Village. And But even that's not really necessary by the time that you've unlocked the, um, the recreation area because you have a save guy and a healer there. Uh, so actually, I think the hypnotist will teleport you back to wherever your last save point was. Oh, interesting. So that actually brings me to my next one of my next points. Oh, real quick at Rag Shop, if uh, if you come in a second time, he will give you a membership card, which from my research appears to connect into the second game only in the SNES version because there was no connectivity between the first second game and the NES version. But since they decided to remake them, they put in just a few threads of connectivity, and I found another one later on in the game. But this one happens now, so. Anyway, so uh, going back to the hypnotist and transporting back to the same spot that you were at, um, around this time, Yumiko learned in my game a spell called Tristart, which basically does the exact same thing, basically eliminating the need for the hypnotist entirely. Were you guys, did you guys even get that spell at this point? No. Yeah, I got, I got it around that point, and it's super useful, especially for uh, my aforementioned grinding for Loki. Oh, absolutely. Like that, that, that spell really, uh, it made something that was starting to become tedious feel just, just a tad more palatable. So I think with that being said, that brings us to Loki, the last boss for this episode. All right. So, uh, the Loki fight is pretty straightforward. Uh, like a lot of the other fights in this game, he is either really simple or really difficult depending on whether or not you found a key item. Uh, the item in this case is uh, Lure's Talisman. Uh, you get this by going back and visiting the guy with the shield after you have beat Medusa. Uh, the item, it's one of the key items. It prevents Loki from using magic, uh, which is really crucial because Loki has some very nasty spells on him. Uh, at this point, if you have that talisman, Loki becomes a lot like Minotauros in that he is basically a level check. Uh, all he really does from that point forward is he hits three to six times per attack uh, for physical damage only. Uh, if you have enough party members, he'll attack each party member. Uh, 
three to six party members. Once your party members start to die off, he will hit multiple times. Uh, so if one person dies, you run a very high risk of ver getting very quickly mowed down. Uh, so this fight basically boils down to casting your heal spells and managing your attacks. Uh, overall, he was kind of a letdown considering everything that he was set up as in that first book. Yeah, he's really been relegated to this pretty minimal status in this game. He is he is feels more like an afterthought than anything else. Like we got yeah, it connected to the book in some way. And he's not particularly hot either. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. I demand my money back. <laughs> yeah, and and like looking at him, so Medusa ruled over Sky City. Uh Minotauros dominated the massive Daedalus Tower. Uh, both of them were set up as the leaders of both those zones. Loki was just kind of hanging out. In a hallway. Like just, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Loki was just hanging out in the hallway, waiting to get beat up by some passing kids. Oh, God. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I actually kind of wonder, do you think it's possible? So what's his magic do if you don't have the Lore's Talisman? Do you think it's possible to beat him without getting the Lore's Talisman? With enough grinding, I'm sure it's possible. Like he, he casts normal spells. They're not stuff that is unusual or remarkable. It's just stuff that you're not prepared for. It, it hits extra hard. It does tons of damage. Yeah. And you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that just going through the game naturally. Uh, you'd probably have to grind for. I, I'd imagine a couple of hours in the next area in order to beat him realistically without that. No doubt, and especially because by the once you're in Sky City. You have access to all the recruitable demons you need to basically make the most powerful demons in the game. I mean, you're gonna oh, have definitely. to you're gonna have to do a few. You're gonna have to like you know get like five or six gnomes to complete uh, your uh, Huang Long or whatever. But it it you it's totally doable at this point. So if you if you sat there in that little area and ground up to level sixty, you could theoretically stomp through the rest of the game. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but you could. Yeah, without doing that, yeah, I mean, just, it mostly just feels like a pretty unnotable kind of like just battle of attrition. You know, your usual like RPG mini boss. Yeah, he does definitely feel like a mini boss almost more than a boss. Like, I feel like I struggled more with Medusa than I did with him, even though he had a higher HP, which is odd. Um, I know you yes. guys didn't really find that much use for magic but i think this was the one fight where i i did find that uh what's the level two uh version of hama hamahan or something like that hama own so you yeah that sounds right that spell if you cast that spell because i had i had yukiko yumiko had that spell and then also i had a demon and i forget which i want to say maybe but that sounds like that was too high level at that point. But I had a demon that also had that spell, and I basically was able to double team him with that. And then whenever I needed to heal, I would just switch over to Yumiko casting uh, Media Ran, and it went pretty quickly. Uh, for me, it was a little bit more difficult again because I missed out of a major chunk of Quarter of Valhalla the first time around. Uh, fortunately, the next area doesn't require a key to get in, so you can just. Bypass Loki, go to the next area, grind around for a bit. Uh, there's a town in the next area you can use to uh, buy new weapons, uh, buy new armor. And uh, one of the nice things about this game is that it scales the experience you receive based on the level you are relative to the demon. Uh, so I walked into the next area, beat one demon, and got like 4,000 XP hmm. immediately. 
Uh, so I gained like two or three levels. Uh, so after about after about twenty minutes of grinding in the next area, I was a good enough level to fight Loki properly. Properly. I properly. I think theoretically at this point in the game, the bosses never actually cut off your progress in terms of getting to the next area. They're only uh, like helpful progress marks, like opening up the elevator so you can go backwards and uh, helping you get items. But I don't I think you could actually walk all the way to the end of the game at this point if you wanted to. You couldn't you couldn't. Uh, so the cool possibly uh, well, the cool thing that look boss, but. Oh, well, the cool thing that Loki does is that unlike all the other bosses, he his key unlocks the elevators for the section you're about to reach. Well, the first half. Yeah. Which we'll, which we'll get to because, ooh, gimmicks. The, the second <laughs> half of the game is full of gimmicks. Oh, um, can't wait. <laughs> but that pretty much covers the first half of uh, Megami Tensai 1. Um, you know, we complain, but there's fun to be had in this game. Uh, oh yeah, and we'll, we'll we'll get to how we feel awesomely about the game in the next episode. But uh, you guys, uh, think we're good on calling it a night? Yeah, yeah I, I think, think so. this is a good place to wrap it up. Um, um, I think so. This is going to be our first episode. I don't think every episode is going to be quite as long, but we cover a lot of ground here. We, uh, if you want to tell your friends about the show, you can uh, go to megatenmarathon.com and uh, hopefully once after this goes up, we will be on iTunes. So if you want to rate and review us on there, um, that would be greatly appreciated. Spread the word. Share. Talk about it. Pound the pavement. Yes. Tell everyone. Yes. Tell your mom. Tell your priest. Don't tell your priest. <laughs> tell um, your mom that you listen to a new uh, podcast about summoning demons to destroy God. <laughs> uh, summoning demons used to be so hard, Mom, but now I can just do it through my iPhone. Any- <laughs> so now we're going to try uh, our our brand new sign-off. Life he, life ho, he ho, is unfair. <laughs>